0: my topic is not accurate it's not the boastful God uh, I must admit it it's the boastful and humble God so let me correct that and in fact they're both important and you'll see that that in fact is the summary of the talk effectively if I you can see it I don't know whether you've been with me so far in our series I hope you have Um, we've been looking at chapters of the prophet Isaiah and I've been looking at chapters 40, 41 and 42 and then today we'll be ranging ranging a little more widely um, up to the early 50. The book of Isaiah has over 60 chapters so it's quite a remarkable uh, volume of work, quite a complex and profound text, probably next to the Psalms perhaps greater than the Psalms, uh, in terms of New Testament understanding, in terms of understanding Jesus and how he understands himself. This book above all, above all. In, my, in the series so far, we've looked at the word of comfort to, well originally we think to Israel, in the 5th century BC. We're going to go back to a time, a long time from one point of view, a time when God's people had been devastated by their enemies who had destroyed their city and even destroyed God's temple. And what was so devastating was that God himself had done it. God had judged them. And that terrible event, called by uh, scholars the, the exile, uh, is, the, is the great dark centre, if you like, of the Old Testament story. Very profound story there. Almost all the prophets, in some way, that are written down almost all relate to it. It's such a profound event. And um, the book of Isaiah, certainly. And in chapter 40 God says, comfort my people, says your God. Time is over. It's time for restoration. We saw how they had to learn how to trust God's promises when they had become discouraged. Then last week we looked at a number of different texts from chapter 41 um, about what I call the Cyrus crisis. Um, this part of the book of Jeremiah 40 through to the the late 40s particularly involves a great world ruler conqueror who was rising at the time king of Persia he dominated uh, and then himself died in uh, in 530 but at this stage he's still coming and he's causing tremendous anxiety he seems nothing can stop him he's causing fear and terror and yet says the Lord I was the one who called him this this terrible conqueror, God says, is my doing that I may rescue my people. And in doing so, raising up the Persians, he's about to smash the Babylonians and create the conditions for his people's return. And he mocks the others. He mocks the, the gods of the other nations who cannot see these things, cannot do these things. Well, I is going to uh, step back from the detail of the history today and look at God with you in Isaiah. Uh, I hope that my material, though, though there will be much of it, will be very simple. And yet I hope to see very profound. And why my title is the Boastful and Humble God, both must be said. But I want to start with the boasting of God. One thing you notice when you ask... Just my notes and my help notes to hear. What you will notice in my notes the boasting of the Lord in the face of impotent idols and unknowing Cyrus. Cyrus doesn't know that God is raised him up. He is ignorant of these things. The idols and false gods of the nations are utterly useless. And a number of times in this material the Lord through His prophet I don't know how to describe it. It is a boasting. It is a, uh, it, it seems almost like the, the, the Cassius Clay. ever heard of Cassius Clay? Muhammad Ali, the African American boxer who uh, was half showman, half boxer. And he made a great impact. What did he say to himself? I am the greatest. And people loved that. And it was he was a character, I am the greatest, he said. And he was the a while. Well, God said that in his own way. Listen to this. I'm going to be reading some texts. Today I'm using the New International Version uh, text of Isaiah. Uh, uh, I used, the, I think, the New Revised Standard Version last week just to keep the changes moving and make you not get excluded. Let's look at 43. In this text, you'll hear God is calling out people to challenge you a lot a lot of these texts are kind of courthouse I called it last week see you in court losers that tone of ok let's have this out you bring your witnesses and I'll bring mine and we'll see who's God it's kind of you it's, you've seen it, it's kind of like the, the God who sued God rather than a man who sued God it's that kind of style the God who sues the other gods look at this same from verse 8 lead out those who have eyes but are blind those who have ears but are deaf let the nations come together and the peoples assemble which of them foretold this and proclaimed to us the former things. For this is particularly the rise of Cyrus and the tremendous changes. Let them bring their witness to prove they are right that others may hear and say it's true. And then from verse 10 I think the Lord's word the Lord's word points now to his own people Israel whom he did tell, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant, whom I have chosen. You Israel, you know I said this, you see, that you may know and believe and understand that I am. I am he, or I am. Before me no God was formed, nor will there be any after me. Verse 11, I, even I, am the Lord and apart from me there is no Saviour. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed, I, not some foreign God among you, you are my witnesses, declared that I am God, yes, and from ancient days I am He. No one can deliver out of my hand when I act. Who could reverse it? Mark, is Notice he calls Israel to be witnesses, by which he means, you can testify the truth of what I have said but well, I've told you these things have happened and, and they have happened um, when you read the Old Testament at times it's always as if the, the Old Testament grudgingly allows the possibility of other gods without really gods there's often this sort, of, sort of talking that the other gods take the 10 commandments you should have no other gods before me not that there are any other gods but they're kind of grudging you know but here and increasingly we see the Lord will not even allow any so called god to even get on to start. There's no other God. This is the proclamation in a clear form, not just of the overarching sovereignty of the Lord, but of monotheism. There is no God but the Lord. By the way, when I say the Lord, what do I mean? You notice in your Bible, your Old Testament. You notice nine capitals. I, even I, am the Lord. Do you see that? that, that that's a, uh, a code. A code for um, a name in Hebrew which we don't know. That's the, that's the English uh, e consonants, Yahweh or Yut, something like that. Um, and it's been a tradition now in English trans-Bible translations since the um, 17th century to just up uh, by the Lord. But it's, it's a name Not just the Lord, meaning that means in charge of everything, the Lord. But so you can actually say in the Old Testament, the Lord is the Lord, without speaking a tautology. See, because you're saying the God known as Yahweh or is the Lord. And one last final bit of trivia in Hebrew if you know your Hebrew Bible in the letters of this turn up a, a Jew would normally not use them, the divine name so sacred is it they would actually put the word Lord in its place as we do in English interesting in Hebrew when, when you read a Hebrew text in a symbol if you don't say the divine name you say Adonai the Lord and in fact in the Hebrew Bible they put the vowels of the word for Lord under the consonants for the word Yahweh and you get what is a vague version in English is Jehovah. That's a sort of funny. I mean, Jehovah is kind of a funny, anglicised version of divine name. And although it has no historical link other than this um, English mistranslation, it's another way of describing the name of the Lord. So when you say I, the Lord, it means I, this one God known by this name, who has made this pact with Israel, and not any other God. Today when we see the word God, we think we mean the one God, but you must understand there's a way in which there are many gods and many lords so-called in the ancient world as indeed today. Look at my next text, 44, just 6 to 8. This is what the Lord says. There's there's the divine name. Israel's King and Redeemer. I am the Lord Almighty. Yahweh, Sabaoth, Lord of hosts in the old language here's what God says I am the first and I am the last and beside me there is no God of course you don't say that loud and clear unless people don't believe you this is, this is a challenge to the world See, it's not just information by the way no, this, is a, this is a challenge to the world to acknowledge this reality and so this text are argumentative they're not merely informative who is like me you know, God sort of say, come on let's see it then let him proclaim it let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I have established my ancient people and what yet come let him foretell where is this alternative to me come on, on, out you come and then again verse 8 to Israel notice the challenge he he challenges the others and then as it were just in case you get scared behind him he turns around and says verse 8 don't tremble, don't be afraid did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God beside me? No, there is not one. I know not one. Part of it, we use the word witnessing today to mean telling up about Christ. and That's a kind of, I guess, a permissible long length. But normally in the Bible it means not just telling somebody something, but actually bearing testimony as a participant. Actually. And Israel is told its job is to, to declare that well, there is only one God. We know. He has spoken to us. That we, he's forecast to us. that Even in the, in the New Testament when Jesus tells people to be very witnesses, it's because they've actually seen the resurrection or the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, I'm not against the word used in another way. That's our freedom to do that. But in the Bible, witnesses is much more like the, the normal sense of witnesses. You know, you saw something. You can testify to it. And that's what Israel has to do. We looked last week at the next text, but I didn't want to just return to it uh, because it, it does belong in this series, 45, 1 to 13. Uh, you see, if there is only one God, see, then it means that everything is somehow under his, under his say. See, the ancient world lived in a world of polytheism, which is not parrots, but many gods. <laughs> many gods. And in a world of many gods, your view of the world is that reality is really a battleground, a cont- like contesting. There's gods of this and gods of that, often themselves under an overarching authority. There are many different gods, a bit like the public, still like the university administration, isn't it? <laughs> not neither one of them know what the other's doing, and you know, immorality and confusion and chaos, just like the University of Sydney, uh, uh, as I understand it. Well, that's what a bit like the, that's what the ancient view of the world is. There are many gods and they, it's hard for us to, if you've never gone up in that world because of the success of this picture, of this Isaiah, picture of God, maybe hard for you to understand some of you may come from societies which are polytheistic and there's a, another characteristic too about polytheism I'll come to in a moment to do with the irrelevance of them to the way you live your lives but imagine all the different different. but when, when there's only one God your view of reality changes you see. and so you see this here in Isaiah 45 I am the Lord there is none other apart from me there is no God I will strengthen you though you don't acknowledge me By the way this I think is a reference to Cyrus talking to him. So that from the rising of the sun to to its place of its setting men may know there is none beside me. I am the Lord, there is none other. I form light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I the Lord do all these things. I the Lord do all these things. There's a radical picture of the world isn't it? Light and darkness, prosperity and disaster from the hands of the Lord. And yet he's not the Lord who is himself amoral or fickle, but the one who is the friend of Abraham and the one who has chosen Israel. But that picture is profound and very important for the high understanding of our own reality. I need to move with some speed, unfortunately, because there's so much we can do by, as it were, taking our time, but I just want to go to 45 18 to 23 we're going to come back to this text, it's one of the most important texts of the series this is what the Lord says, verse 18 and jumping to verse 20, again um, it's, it's another one of these let's have it out in court kind of texts gather together and come assemble you fugitives from the nations, ignorant of those who carry about the idols of wood who pray to gods who cannot save Declare what is to be presented. Let them take counsel together. Who declared this long ago? Who declared it from this past? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a Saviour. There is none but me. Then comes a, a very important new dimension that we have not seen before in our texts. As I said, this is argumentative, not just informational. But he, he has a summons to the world now. If there is only one God, one Saviour, one rock, verse do. turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. And not just you Israel, this is a very stand, not just you Israel whom I have chosen, but this is a genuine universal text. Turn to me, all you ends of the earth, and be saved. To the very ends of the earth does the voice of the Lord go, announcing. That he alone is God. For I am God, and there is no other. See the universality of the, of the word about the Lord is for all the world, because there's only one God who's God of all the world. Because we know Him by other names, we know Him as the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. We have other, we've got slightly different, uh, more, more complexity, but nonetheless, we're talking about the same one, there is no God but the Lord and then God says God makes, God swears an oath. it's rather odd, uh, you know you sort of promise to do something and you really really promise it <laughs> well that's what God says, he says I by myself have sworn and my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked, here it is before me every knee shall bow and every tongue, just swear. Here the Lord, the God of Israel, the Holy One of Israel, not only commands the nations to come to Him, but, but makes a solemn promise by His own integrity that His sovereignty will be acknowledged by all, be formed by me, every knee will bow, and every tongue confess. He is going to be acknowledged as he truly is by all the nations. That's what that's... Now there, if that's not a boast, what is a boast? There it is. I'm going to jump to the next text, but there's a lovely bit where... no, you know I put it in, it's just so nice, where it's not so much a boastful thing, but an announcement of the coming reign of God. Just summarize this first section uh, for a moment. Um, the boasting Lord. Um, what you see here is the unashamed the utterly clear announcement of the fact there is but one God and no rivals and nothing else is God. Uh, Today we probably take it for granted that a religion is about how you live. But when you have many gods it's more like, I said, the university administration different gods will have different rituals and cults and practices but often the way you live will be quite unrelated. But when there is one Lord alone He claims his people's lives. And therefore he is with what we call monotheism, the belief there is no God but God, the one God, in which you have, in in, in religion, the connection, the strong connection between not just what sacrifices you offer or what songs you give, as it were, paying off the gods, but in fact the notion that your whole life belongs to you and how you live. And notice here that the Lord is an aware, conscious, concerned, active being. This is no philosophical, vague God like in Buddhism or Taoism or in some modern versions of um, attempts to reform Christianity that, 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 that end up walking it down. It's not just God a force. There is about the living God an awareness, an activeness, a concern a consciousness. I know we're using these words, stretching them. you know God is conscious, in a way that we're not. Of course, He is God and we are but humans. God is aware differently, but we can still use these words of God, the active God, not merely a passive divinity. And thirdly, we've seen a unique power to motivate and focus. Monotheism, the belief that there is only one God, is one of the most powerful forces in the world, history, and today. For good and ill, by the way. Ronald Stark, in his book One True God, wrote this, listen to this. Western history, he said, would be unrecognisable had it not been for people who believed in one true God. There would have been wars, but no religious wars. There would have been moral codes, but no commandments. Had the Jews been polytheists, they would today have been only another barely remembered people less important, but just as extinct as the Babylonians. Christians presented Jesus to the Greco-Roman world as another God their faith would long ago have gone the way of myth and the same would apply even to Islam Stark by the way is not a Christian believer he's just a sociologist but uh, he draws attention to this profound portrait of the boastful God who alone is God But that's not all you get. And this is is why, why my title was misleading to you. There is at the same time another theme in this material that really feels so opposite. We first met it last week in chapter 42. Here is my servant whom I uphold. And I said last week, because Israel has been called God's servant, you naturally assume it's talking about Israel, although... That will become a little more problematic as we go through it. There's this figure. You see, here is my chosen, in whom I delight. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out, or raise his voice in the streets. How different from the Lord, who's <laughs> crying, crying out in the nations to cut it, to put up or shut up, as it were. But not this figure. In fact, a bruised reed he will not break, a smouldering wick he will not put up. He'll be so gentle that even that little, you know, that late at night when your cannon goes right down, he won't even stuff that out. And yet, he'll do it in faithfulness, he'll bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged until he establishes justice on the earth. In his law, the islands have put, his hope, put his hope. you think, what's that? What is this image here to do with that? Here is the Lord saying, Turn to me, all the nation of the earth. And you know, here's this other figure. Is it, is, it, is it Israel's task to somehow, in its own very unobtrusive way, and yet somehow bring to him, to the nation, not just to Israel, the islands, the, their hope? And there's a series of these texts, as you move through Isaiah, in each of them uh, they're called servant songs by the scholars, um, but more and more the theme that the, this figure will have a hard time of it. When you hear the Lord, the Lord says, Effortless, right? put it up or shut up, you, you gods. You know, who else but me? There is no God. But when you get the figure person, the servant person, it's increasingly a harder and harder time. Look at chapter 49 uh, with me. We'll just go straight to there. Here, we have, as it were, the voice of this figure speaking to us. And in fact, facing discouragement listen to me you islands hear this you distant nations before I was born the Lord called me from my birth he has made mention of my name he has made my mouth like a sharpened sword in the shadow of his hand he hit me he made me a polished polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver he said to me you are my servant Israel in whom I will display my splendor so here we it is as it were the people speaking what it is like to be God's witnesses I said, I've laboured for no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain for nothing. My way is hidden from the Lord. Yet what is due to me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says, Fear you form me in the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him to gather Israel to himself. Hang on. To bring Jacob back. I thought we I thought the servant was Israel, verse 3. You see, to have this distinction developing, that, that, that this figure, who at first seems to be God's own people, is at some level distinct from, and also will not just speak to the nation, but will be a witness to Israel itself. Let's read on. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and God has been my strength, verse 6. He says to me, it is too small a thing for you to... This could be a question, by the way. Can't tell me. <laughs> or is it too small it is too small a thing to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept I will also make you a light for the Gentiles or nations that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth once again the ends of the earth by the way a question for later where does that occur in New testament the phrase the ends of the earth you may remember don't know Michael Quine knows he went to college not, not allowed to answer <laughs> Others, may think to the end of the earth God says turn to the ends of the earth here the servant is to bring a light to the nations that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth so now we see this servant figure more distinctly a ministry both as it were to represent the other side of God's boastfulness God says turn to me the end of the earth and now we see this figure here who, one of them is, is a distinct from and yet struggling with uh, God's call um, a sidebar to, um, Acts 13.46 uh, Luke 2.29 just some New Testament references that phrase, a light to the nations is picked up at least twice and just once by the, by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ In Acts 13, when the Jewish people reject the message in a particular place, Paul and Barnabas defend their turning to the pagans in the city by quoting this text. Listen to this, this is verse 47 of Acts 13. The Lord has commanded us, saying, I have set you to be a light for the Gentiles so that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth the apostles understood that text to be to them. That they, in proclaiming the, the risen Lord Jesus Christ, were fulfilling the ministry of the servant Israel to Israel and to the nations. In fact, you think of that, it makes perfect sense. It's exactly what they were doing. But before that, and this is where all the old school Anakins, remember? There will be none of you left. In that song of Simeon, or the Noctometicis called in Latin, where an old man in Luke 2 sees the little child, Jesus. Nothing's happened yet except that rather strange story of his birth. But, and he sees and he sees in his child the fulfilment of the great prophecies. And he says at last, he says at master, he says to God, you are dismissing your servant in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation which you prepared in the presence of all people. A light for revelation to the Gentiles. And the glory of the people of Israel as you get in the very second chapter of the book of Luke's gospel there is the old man Simeon seeing an him child with the gift of prophetic insight this servant figure of Isaiah bringing the salvation of the Lord into the earth in this baby well sidebar concluded uh, press on let's go to the great passage 52 leave out 50. The one that just stands out, towering, is this servant passage. It's the longest. It's the most grim. It's the most detailed. It's the most profound. See, my servant will act wisely or prosper. In our street, he'll be raised up and lifted at heart exalted. This is God speaking. But listen to this servant that God's going to exalt. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured, that of any man his form marred beyond human likeness, so will he sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouth because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. What they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom is the arm of the Lord being revealed? And then we talk about the servant. He grew up before him, before God, like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we consider him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that has brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. It's paused. Now you see the portrait is, the servant is now much stronger. This is the one who somehow is now representing and standing in for the one who is, if the hour is understood here, it's going to be Israel. The one upon whom the judgment of God has fallen for us. This figure. Then God will exalt. Verse 6 We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And that language of laying iniquity on is the language of taking responsibility for. He carried, take the responsibility for our iniquity. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before the shearers of Sodom. He did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living, and for the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his wealth, in his death. They would have done no violence, nor in the in his mouth. And this tragic figure of suffering um, uh, and of loss, uh, and yet it is the Lord in this. Verse 10, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer, and though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, having just said he, he cut off the land of living and got no descendants, back in verse 8 and 9, here we have a sudden change. The Lord makes his life a guilt offering he will see his offspring and prolong his days. The seeker will have descendants and life. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul he will see the light of life. Listen to the difficult text there. He, after the suffering of his soul he will see light, or the light of life, and be satisfied. And by his knowledge my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. He will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death, and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Here is this figure, which is poured himself out for the transgressors, whom God will hardly exalt. Now, um, when you get to the Acts of the Apostles, there's a lovely text there, chapter eight, twenty-six in which uh, Philip is on the road and here comes a man um, an Ethiopian eunuch a of court official and he's actually reading this text it's must it's have re- read this text and the text is so full of and he says and he reads it out and the man says to, to, to Philip, who was he writing about? Was it about himself or someone else? Very good questions. By the way that question of the uh, Ethiopian eunuch has kept scholars in uh, House and home for years. It's been a tremendously fruitful bit of scholarly work. Though what Philip says to him is what uh, the Gospel says. And and if you're a Christian believer, you'll see this coming. It's not rocket science. Not now. It was then. Then Philip began to speak, starting with this scripture, proclaim to him the Gospel of Jesus. It, it, it points so powerfully. It's always... Most prophecies are not that particular, but you see now the figure of Jesus Yes, He is the one who is both of Israel and yet distinct from Israel. He's both them and yet pilot. He's the one who, upon whom uh, in His death, a tragic death at first, unexpected and yet no, it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. What's really surprising is that this text has such a small presence in the New Testament. You'd think that this Isaiah passage would be everywhere, but it's not. But it's in two or three really key places couple of places like when Jesus talks about himself well the son of man came not to serve but to be served and give him life a ransom for many that notion of the forgiving for many or at the, at, the, at the last supper with his disciples as he gave them the wine to drink he said this is the blood of my covenant poured out for many echoing the language of this serpent song you may want to look at 1 Peter 2 21-25 where the apostle Peter takes this text and expands it of the Lord Jesus Christ and in fact uses it, uh, I won't read it now, my time is, is too precious at the moment but you'll see it's an almost a kind of midrash and, uh, which is a word for meaning a, a kind of meditation on, an expansion of the text. That's 1 Peter 2, 21 to 25 and you will see in fact uh, if you've got a Bible which, is, which underlines the quotation from the Old Testament you'll find it uh, quite telling. But the one I want to go to is, the, is, is, is uh, Philippians 2, 5 to 1. Um, an astounding text. Do you know that text, Philippians? Let this mind be you in Christ Jesus, that those in the form of God did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but empty himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Therefore, God has exalted him and gave him the name above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee, should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, the obvious bit is the last bit. i put it down in the text for you Isaiah 45 22. What did, what did the boastful God say? Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. I have sworn to me every knee shall bow. What does the announcement of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ say? To him, why did God exalt the Lord Jesus Christ? To crucify Jesus. Why did he raise him, verse 10 of Philippians, says to so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Everywhere, up heaven and under earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. What, what's happened is that boast of God has now been as it were more clearly focused how will God how will the living God bring all the world to acknowledge he alone is God and his sovereignty by raising Jesus to share his sovereignty in fact the name which you confess is not the Lord but that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father not as though the Father has kind of advocated no, there's a new depth here it is by proclaiming that the Jesus raised from the dead, that's the way in which God sovereignly over all the world to the ends of the earth that's why when disciples proclaim that, they are light to the nations what you may not have picked up and I didn't until I read the excellent book which I quote at the bottom by Richard Balcombe God crucified, which is a brilliant little chapter on this, is that there are other texts too in this which reflect that. take Isaiah 52, see my servant shall prosper, he shall be exalted and lifted up. He shall be very high, therefore God has hardly exalted him. Um, earlier on God's the servant says he will pour his life out to death and pour your life out is almost exactly the same word as in verse 7. He emptied himself, poured himself out. The point I'm making and it's, not, it's a profound and a wonderful point is this that the New Testament Gospel identifies Jesus, death and resurrection. No, he's coming to earth in incarnation, death and resurrection, with the identity of the Lord of Isaiah. And not only that, as Malcolm says, it's so good I gave you the quote. He reads, Paul reads Isaiah, he takes the servant passages over here, and the boastful passages over here that we left kind of unresolved as we read Isaiah, they both sit there. How do you put them together? When well, you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, they come together. They come together. For in fact, it's through the humiliation, death, and exaltation of Jesus that the sovereignty of the one true God is to be acknowledged by all the nations. And can I say, you need both. Next week, I think uh, Phil Jensen speaking on the entitlement God, and I'm sure he'll be taking some of the stuff i what happened up and no doubt, doing, doing it very powerfully. And that's an important truth. You need to, you need to hold to the one true God and not sacrifice. But there's one name given under human beings by which we may be saved. But the other hand, understand that the way that God does this is by the profound humility of the servant. God's weakness, as it were, is in the gospel as, well as the strength, and therefore. Not only in our belief as we rejoice in this wonderful truth, the gospel, but even the way that we are, as we stand firm as a light to the nations, even us. And yet at the same time, though God may be boastful, we can't be. Get my drift? It's not we are you, and there is no other, except on the football match. I give you permission to sin. Remember on that point. That's all right. That, that, that's all. you sort of parts that point. But other than on the football match against More College. Uh, we don't proclaim ourselves but Jesus Christ is Lord and us as your servants. As your servants, for Jesus' sake. I think there's nothing more wonderful than to live in the strength and weakness of the boastful, humble God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you as both the one true God uh, about whom we we are deeply boastful and also the God who who came to us humbly in in our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you so much that you gave up your Son who is bruised for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. And we pray that you would Fill us with your spirit and inspire us to be boastful of you in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.